I remember saying to my parents on the journey that I hadn't seen another area of healthcare with less information, less transparency about quality of care, less clarity for family members around what they can do to be supportive of recovery as opposed to protecting dysfunctional behaviors. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. News of the nation's opioid epidemic more or less took a back seat to news about the pandemic over the past 15 months. But the United States is still in the grip of a massive crisis that is stealing lives, costing billions in treatment, and crippling state systems designed to support those with addiction issues. And yet, other than lawsuits against Big Pharma, the many costs of this crisis have not yet prompted political will to overcome it. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence speaks to Arden O'Connor, who leads the O'Connor Professional Group, to address the needs of families and individuals struggling with an array of behavioral health issues, including addiction. They discuss what can change, what will change, and what needs to change now. Arden, I thought I would begin, because context is everything here, uh, to begin to speak about sort of not only what you do, but why you do it and your own personal narrative, which is, I think, particularly um, important and would be of great interest. So I started uh, O'Connor Professional Group 10 years ago. It'll be 10 years this July, which everybody says feels like it went by in a flash. It doesn't feel so to me. It feels like it's been uh, a few decades running a small business. Um, But I started it because my youngest brother struggled with addiction. Um, And he has a pretty classic story of somebody who began using, you know, we know from stats that if you begin drinking alcohol um, under the age of 18, he started around 12. Statistically, his chances of developing a problem later in life were 47%. I was sort of the other end of the spectrum, a nerd who waited till I was 21, and my chances went down to 9%. Um, And, you know, as, as I've shared in with you, David, you know, we were an Irish Catholic family, last name's O'Connor. So, you know, addiction is sort of the name of the game in our larger family system. The running joke has been that uh, the O'Connor professional group could stay in business just serving O'Connor family and friends for years. So my brother, Chris, had unfortunately sort of a perfect storm of genetic predisposition, ADHD in his prepubescent years, which we know is, is correlated with substance use. Um, and a risk-taking personality, and um, began his journey young um, with substances, alcohol and marijuana primarily, and progressed in his high school years to um, more more high-risk behaviors around alcohol, eventually to cocaine and crack cocaine, um, unbeknownst to my parents. And still, because he was a very intelligent young man, he definitely had some consequences along the way. He got into a ski accident, um, actually because he was high on the mountain um, and broke his neck. He was he was fine, but he couldn't play sports anymore. Um, and then wound up, but he did manage to matriculate to college and made it through his first year with sort of mediocre grades. And in his second year, really began to experience some difficulties to the point that we as a family came in and sort of hauled him out of his dorm room and and realized shortly thereafter that he needed to get treatment. Um, and he started, you know, at 19 with the first of what became 15 different rehabs. And we have, you know, one of the stories that you hear not so infrequently anymore of a family that was just desperate to get the right support. And he would go in and out of various detox centers, various residential programs, see therapists, psychiatrists, and everyone had a different opinion as to what was going on and, and why he was using and what he needed to do to get better 
Um, and my parents throughout all of this were spending, you know, lots of time, energy and money trying to figure out what to do. Um, and all the while just terrified. And I, I remember saying to my parents on the journey that I hadn't seen another area of healthcare with less information, less transparency about quality of care, um, less clarity for family members around what they can do to be supportive of recovery as opposed to protecting dysfunctional behaviors. Um, and that's really what motivated us to start O'Connor Professional Group. And um, we've developed from a mainly focused substance use business in Boston, which is where we started now, into a national organization that serves people with addiction, mental health, eating disorders, and autism, so a much broader array of behavioral health issues. Um, but that that was sort of the journey I took and feel very fortunate to run a company that I truly enjoy working at every day. And I know just uh, from your background, uh, and, you know, we spoke about your going on to Harvard Business School and recognizing what was missing in the marketplace here. And you talk about the fragmented nature of information. I want to maybe put this into a little more plain speak, Arden, which is for so many years and for so many generations, people have not known where to turn to get the information they need, get the resources that they need, get the help they need. And I'll also add to get the understanding and empathy that's needed. And for far too long, stigma and shame have ruled and also ignorance. And as we're coming out of this particular pandemic, uh, I'll editorialize a little bit. I just feel that something has really been lost in the national dialogue of what families go through, what people go through. And I'll call it a failure writ large of the system to help people gain the information, the insight, the evidence-based resources that are needed. And I know that's basically become your life mission. It absolutely has. Um, I think for a whole host of reasons. I mean, I think we know, and I'm sure you're more well aware of this than, than many, David, but we know that there's been a ton of institutional capital moved into the residential, uh, you know, treatment business. And, and I actually think it can be a good thing in many ways. It can professionalize prior mom and pop shops. It can help people figure out how to implement outcomes better. Um, but at the same time, a lot of money has been poured into search engine advertising and um, figuring out ways to attract patients, which again, isn't a bad thing. But I think what we have learned is it makes families enormously confused. So if you go to just Google addiction help for my son, you're going to get thousands of different, you know, websites that pop up, many of which look very similar. And so because we're in this business and we work in it every day, we have a sense of this program versus that, or this provider versus that one. But it's very hard as a lay person to distill the information into a digestible format, particularly when you're in a crisis. You know, usually it's in a lot of cases, better than 50%. The person struggling with whether it's the mental health issue, the substance use issue, the eating disorder, um, even autism, the person themselves isn't necessarily raising their hand with insight into what's going on, saying, I know I need help. Sometimes, if you're lucky, that's happening. But many times, it's a parent, a spouse, a child of an adult parent, 
um, another type of family member who's saying, boy, I think there's something wrong here. We need to get this person the care they need. So I feel like it's an unrealistic expectation. There's no go-to resource. And I think the one we've seen people go to is a physician, which if I want to say the number is that they that physicians get a total of one hour of teaching in all of their education around substance use and addiction, which is to me mind boggling given the position they're in from a prescribing standpoint. But you know, nevertheless, it's part of the reason that you know, for my family and for many that we serve, having access to information um, in a moment of of real emotional turmoil where you can be clear and you can help people find a path was a, was an important mission for, for our group. And, um, as you know, from, because we have known each other for now a good five plus years, six years, uh, when I started rain and brought in Dr. Lesser to head the medical and psychological network, it was with an acute understanding of, that even the most sophisticated and educated individuals didn't know where to go, where to turn, what to do in these situations when um, they had an issue with a loved one, whether it was a spouse, a son, daughter, brother, sister, etc. And I saw this play out time and again, not only at Goldman Sachs, but at the U.S. Attorney's Office, where we had uh, one of the most talented prosecutors uh, who was dealing with uh, some mental health challenges, which we didn't know about at the time, but became heavily addicted to cocaine, and his career and his life spiraled out of control. I want to ask you what I have found, and I'll ask you to correct me if I'm wrong. We, we know some of the things that we have to do. We know how to identify signs. We know the types of treatment intervention that has a higher probability of working. We know this is a chronic disease and one that needs constant, where people need constant support. We know it's a disease of the brain. And we also know that it often lives, I'll use the word coterminously with other mental health challenges. And yet, Arden, um, I can't help but just sort of look out and and wonder whether, you know, we've made progress. Yes, you know, as you say, with the internet and Google, we still don't seem, with with a couple of exceptions, and, and I, you know, the government has, you know, one or two websites, people still don't know um, sort of what they need to know. And they don't know necessarily the best resources to turn to and what they need to know in the moment and what they need to know down the road. And I'm going to ask a very simple question, but why is that? It's a simple question as is many, as are many questions with a complex answer. Um, I think the simple answer is that much of the research that has been done in addiction hasn't been applied in practice. Um, so you know, there are plenty of evidence-based practices that we know that are available, but available to whom, with what insurance in real time, with somebody who's resisting care and under what circumstances is sort of the puzzle that I think makes it much more difficult and very distinctive from the medical system. You know, at the time 
um, years ago when my brother was in the midst of his addiction, I wound up with leukemia and I am fortunate to have actually my brother with the addictive disorder was my bone marrow donor. But I always say to my parents at that time, they could very clearly lay out if you go the path of repeated rounds of chemo, here's your chances of survival, here are some of the risks of mortality, here's what you'd feel in terms of symptoms. If you go the bone marrow transplant, here's same same information, here's what's covered by insurance, which is 100%, of, you know, 99.5% of the, of the cost. On the behavioral health side, if you looked at my brother's addiction as another example, because of all these complicating factors, patient resistance, um, question of whether there's a co-occurring diagnosis. The therapeutic alliance, you know, a lot of the words you'll see on treatment centers is information about evidence-based treatments. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm a big believer in looking at data and figuring out what works. And at the same time, we also know that you can be using the best techniques and not implement the way and implement those techniques the way they were originally designed in the study. Or you can be a therapist who has no ability to build what we call a therapeutic alliance and your outcomes are, are not going to be as good regardless of what modality you treat. So I think, I also will say, I think historically, behavioral health issues, issues of, you know, what my colleague likes to call it, of issues of above the neck, um, was were sort of treated like a, you know, a sidebar or a, a, a not. They were not integrated into the medical system the same way, same way we look at heart disease and major other diagnoses. And some of that stigma, some of that is funding, some of that is perception about. You mentioned earlier, which I think is important to just reiterate, it's a chronic disease. I don't think that mindset for the lay person was accepted maybe until the last few years. And I will still say, there's many clients we work with who say. Nah, he doesn't have an issue. He's just got to, you know, pull himself up by his bootstraps and get to work. And I don't, I'm not worried about this anxiety, quote unquote, thing. Um, so I think there's a whole host of reasons as to why we don't have the same advocacy, the same availability of information. Um, and I do think stigma, while I think the COVID, one benefit of COVID has been that it's brought the conversation about mental health and substance use, I think, into the main stream media outlets into, you know, Wall Street Journal and mainstream publications, I do think, um, I, I think we're starting to see people more willing to admit these issues, but I think there's still, you know, we, we always joke, but it's, it is actually a truth. You know, you get cancer and somebody brings you a lasagna, your son goes to rehab, you're probably not going to tell anybody and nobody is bringing you lasagna to say, I'm so sorry. It's going to be more of something that's hidden away. And so, um, you're, you're getting to a point that uh, I, I keep trying to understand because I still remember in the 2016 election, I think every one of the candidates had a loved one or close friend that either had been lost to addiction or was in the process of struggling with recovery. And even that didn't seem to generate uh, other than a bit of lip service, uh, much political traction. And I remember um, Senator Kobuchar actually was one of the few candidates, you know, in the recent run-up to, you know, the nomination, who actually had a, a policy um, on her website about dealing with this. She saw it as a priority. And I've been trying to understand, as, as many of my friends and colleagues, and I will 
tell you, you know, uh, fortunately, I acquired enough insight to be a little bit dangerous that I was able to help people at Goldman Sachs whose loved ones, you know, they didn't realize what they were struggling with, but we were able to get to the bottom of this. But I'm, I'm having trouble understanding sort of the slowness of this because the the number of deaths, the number of people that have been lost, you know, certainly rivals, if not dwarfs, what we've just gone through with the pandemic. The number of loved ones that have been lost into the streets, into the prisons, and just disappeared. The economic costs we've had, members of the Federal Reserve who have testified to the economic costs of substance dependency and it's its toll on the you know the economy no less you know I've done some traveling and been through some towns and cities you can just see have been decimated by this and yet yet I'm just not seeing you know this becoming a priority and I'm, I'm really having trouble understanding why and you know I've had these discussions where people have likened it to the AIDS crisis where people said, well, you know, this is God's will. They're being, people are being punished for their own activities or they should control their own activities, et cetera. And yet this got off the ground and we now look at AIDS and we look at consensual sexual activity in a very, very different way. We know people take risks particularly when they're young. We know that social pressures, you know, often determine the use of drugs recreationally or otherwise and alcohol. We know people who are suffering with anxiety and depression often revert to self-treatment and they feel better for a while. And we understand how quickly people can become dependent and not the least of which, Arden, because I know, but we're going through a time where it is now very, very clear certain corporations marketing opioids in a way that was truly unsafe. Doctors, whether knowingly or unknowingly or unwittingly or willfully blind, were prescribing at levels that were unsafe, that the most innocent individuals got hooked and their lives spiraled out of control and often into death. And families were left with the cost of this. I mean, I'm just not feeling political, I'll call it will, to make this a priority, notwithstanding costs in lives, to families emotionally, to communities, to the economy. And I'll argue it's an issue of national security because what experts are telling me is there's a whole other wave of uh, addiction coming behind this. Uh, you know, I'd love to get your view on that and, and inversely, what it would take to finally get people to recognize that this is such a priority. I wish I had a fantastic answer. I mean, my gut comes back to, you know, something I think you alluded to a little bit. I think for many people, if you've not, while I think that the vision or the um, image of somebody with an addiction issue is starting to shift, I still think there's a good portion of our country, if you haven't been impacted personally, that believes this is somehow separate from me. Um, You know, I I used to joke with my brother that 
people with opiate dependence weren't, you know, cuddly little teddy bears. They don't have, you know, and, and families, I think, in general and individuals oftentimes are trying to shield themselves from pain. And, you know, the natural thing for anyone who's seen a tragedy is to say, well, thank God I wasn't, but I don't take that bus route or I wouldn't put myself in that situation. And it's not, I think, a lack of compassion. It's a how am I different from that person and how can I protect myself from that happening to me? And I do think there is a bit of that with addiction. I think it's a, um, a group of individuals who cause, you know, as you sort of said in the beginning, there's productivity losses at jobs, you know, there's healthcare costs, there's incarceration costs. It's a, it's a population of people that isn't, hasn't had an advocacy group behind them um, in the same way that even, um, the AIDS crisis did. Uh, and I think without that, you know, I don't know, I, I don't know actually what it would take um, for politicians to pay attention. It's not, I think there is a divided view in our country, no matter what physicians say, no matter what medications come onto the market, no matter how much we talk about the opioid epidemic being just that, an epidemic and addiction being a disease. I I still don't think it's a as popular of a stance to take that you know we're going to treat this. I still think there's a lot of fear about um, people with addiction is- issues selling drugs to kids or coming into your neighborhood and you know and um, and I think even you know I've been impressed. There's been a few groups, a few nonprofits in our country that have done real work to try and get better access to care, better transparency around what providers are offering. Um, and there's an organization in Boston that does some very controversial work, things like sending um, fentanyl testers. I'm going to, I'm of course going to say this all incorrectly, but a way to actually measure if you have people who are homeless on the streets using heroin to test whether or not what they're ingesting is what they think they're ingesting because accidental overdose is a huge issue. Um, but that work again, and I've been shocked. It's a group called Rise Massachusetts. I've been shocked by their work because I, I think it's so progressive and it has some very um, well-known business leaders behind it. But that that is new. I would say that's, you know, the last five to ten years that people are willing to take a stand and say this is important work and we're going to go after it. I think in general it's just a cause that has a – that is harder for politicians to get behind for sure because the, the people who represent addiction and recovery even to some degree are not the people that um, necessarily inspire – the rest of the country to get really excited. It expires people like me because I was related to one who passed away from an overdose and um, I'm related to two other uh, people in my family, in my immediate family, who have, you know, who are in long-term recovery. So, um, but it's not necessarily an issue that if you haven't had it in your family system, people understand or really get excited to get behind. Right. And I, I don't want to dwell too much on this because, and, and I like the fact that there, your point about an advocacy group and I've sometimes you know in my mind I've I've envisioned if all the mothers came together who have uh, and they're out there on Facebook I've I've you know I've read so many of the postings um, and I've read the obituaries that you know have been written as people they, they kind of came out of the closet to acknowledge you know what happened to their son or their daughter and you certainly have heard from them in the context of some of the litigation going on. When we had every single presidential candidate in 2016, Donald Trump, who lost his brother 
to alcohol. Chris Christie, you know, spoke eloquently, and Jeb Bush was dealing with this. You know, the Clinton family has had friends and, and such, and still nothing emerged. And I'm still trying to ponder as is what it's going to take. I wish I had a great answer for you. Uh, I think I'd be in a, I think I'd be running a much bigger organization or probably be in a much better position if, um, I, I do think, so I'll say a couple things. I say, you know, I don't have an answer. I don't, I, I certainly don't have the vision that, that someone in the government would need to, to create, you know, landmark change. I do think it's not going to be any one thing, which is an obvious statement. I think, you know, we see people who get very dogmatic about it's medication-assisted treatment, it's AA, it's therapy, it's this, it's residential. And, you know, what we've seen in the course of running our company is that different people respond to different modalities, different types of interventions, different levels of care at different points in time. And there's a lot of human factors that go into what makes sense for what person at what moment. Um, you know, if somebody's got two small kids and staying home to be a presence for them makes more sense than, you know, outpatient treatment plus medication may be the best way to go. If someone's in an environment that is filled with people who are high risk um, and they don't have a job and they're not functioning all that well, then residential may be a better answer. And, the, and there's all sorts of family dynamics that go into the process. So I do think it's figuring out how do we have care that's accessible to all, particularly people on public insurance, Medicaid, Medicare, because we still are woefully underrepresented in those categories. Um, I think it's figuring out how do we address this as a chronic disease instead of people assuming that if someone goes to a, a detox or to a residential program for 30 days, you know, it's sort of they're fixed and they're going to come home and return to life and as normal. And how do we as family systems, as educators as employers figure out what's a reasonable transition and what services are going to need to be in place in the community. Um, I think that's, you know, a big, a big piece of the puzzle because I do think aftercare is an area where, where most people struggle. They get back into the temptations of their daily life and into the stressors and it's very hard to maintain sobriety. Um, I think, I think families being more open to getting support, um, for themselves, I, I, you know, what we like to say, everyone asks us, you know, do you just work with the individual patient? And what we have learned again in the last 10 years is that many times the individual person with the diagnosis doesn't, they're not interested in getting help or they're not interested in the help we're offering. Um, but the family can do a lot of different things that maximizes the chances that that person gets better and can reduce the chances that that person um, winds up in a bit worse position. They can't control the actions. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not going against the ethos of Al-Anon. But I do think family members understanding um, understanding the disease, understanding what protecting behavior looks like. We don't like to use the term enabling, but you know, how do you how do you avoid um, allowing someone's dysfunction to continue? So that I think you know, access to services for families. I think one of the most impressive things I've also seen in the nonprofit field is drugfree.org offering free parent coaching to parents because I think that's such a hard um, such a hard area for many people to get the help they need. So I do and I think the last piece and I sort of mentioned this earlier but having better early detection and and I come at it from a physician standpoint. I think, you know, I am thrilled to say that in the last few years my doctor asked me now you know, how many drinks do you have per week? Have you ever felt like you were going to hurt yourself? Have you been anxious and depressed? Those questions 
uh, were not on my screening appointments five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, but I think more education of, of people that families are going to go to in communities. And, you know, if you think about average families, it's going to be going, they're going to go to the clergy, they're going to go to their physician, probably first and foremost, um, and they're going to look for solutions. And, and so I think the more that we can get doctors and that sort of, you know, not really a first responder, but that first responder type to be ready to make not only, you know, triage if there's an emergency, but really make some important referrals and in integrate the care into the mainstream health of that person. So every visit you're checking back in, I know you were struggling with drinking a little too much, or I know you were struggling with feeling sad and depression. Are you seeing that therapist? You know, making that a regular part of the checkup, I think, ensures that there's at least some more preventative care, which is what we don't have in this country either. We wait until somebody is, you know, metaphorically or literally bleeding, and then we treat it. And that's a much harder proposition because somebody's behaviors are much more ingrained. So you've made an, a number of good points and a great points, I should say. What you're highlighting is that um, in understanding the mental health challenges and the issues of dependency, um, first of all, it's not one size fits all. Uh, there are many factors that lead into the conditions and there are many potential responses that have to be tried before you actually start to see some that work. When you're counseling, uh, because I want to give people hope here, I, I am frustrated politically uh, with how this nation has you know, failed to prioritize this and people are still lost in the streets. If you, And if you want to speak about you know, the incarceration issue. Um, also share with them, um, you know, a sense of optimism of what we now know today can be of extraordinary help to the individuals and to the family or loved members who are supporting them. It's a, it's a big question. So I think, you know, a few things. We know that roughly 10% of the population is considered to have a substance abuse issue, and, and that includes addiction um, as well. And that number is estimated to be underreported because most people who have an addictive disorder wouldn't necessarily identify as having it. Um, we know, I think from a statistical standpoint, you know, I would say the biggest newer news is, uh, is around COVID. So we know that about 20% of the population has a mental health issue. Um, if you look at stats, Prior to the pandemic, I would say about a third of the population reported experiencing anxiety. Post uh, COVID nineteen, it's closer to fifty, you know, mid 50, 53 percent, fifty five percent of people are reporting feeling anxious. Um, so we know, you know, I think it's interesting because a lot of the conversation in media has turned around, you know, the impact of COVID, which don't get me wrong, it's exacerbated issues, but it exacerbated a tidal wave that was already coming. Um, and that employers knew they were coming because they've been looking at our health care claims data and watching where the major costs are. And if you are a small employer or a large one and you have multiple employees with behavioral health issues and they, even one of them has to go into some type of residential program, you know, you know what costs that incur. So we know we were already living in a society that I think um, – was because of many factors was dealing with the opioid crisis with rising rates of anxiety and self-harm among young people you know our rates of suicide have grown dramatically for ages 10 to 14 since 2017 which is a very 
scary group to think of, you know, having increasing um, self-harming behaviors and suicidal thoughts and actual, you know, suicide attempts. Um, we also know on the genetic side that if you are the son of an alcoholic father, which was the case in, in my family, you are four to six times more likely to be an alcoholic yourself. Um, so there, there are, you know, the good news to your point is, and there are, and, and I'm by no means an expert on this, so I, I hope you don't grill me, but there are increasing amounts of data that are available for people to look at everything from, you know, how do you personalize your medication regime to fit your genetic makeup? Um, we know that there's more and more devices that are wearable in the home that allow people to exist with a mental health issue or with a substance use issue, um, but still live their life fully and not feel like they need to be institutionalized. Um, we know that there are medications. I think one issue that I am so passionate about, and not because I'm a physician, but more because I run a case management company, you know, we we know that compliance around medication regimes is a huge issue for somebody with a substance use disorder or a mental health issue. And there's an increasing number of injectable options on the marketplace. So there are, and there's, I mean, you probably know more than I do in the digital health space, David, of, you know, how much invention is happening there and um, everything from, you know, mobile breathalyzer uh, testing devices to, um, to companies with various types of apps where you can get on-demand you know, coaching or on-demand therapy. So I, it is a field, again, that's getting a lot of um, institutional money put into it. There's a lot more focus on innovation, and I think there's a lot more recognition of that, you know, while we will always have a continuum of care that includes traditional outpatient therapy and hospitals and bricks and mortar, I think the world has expanded in terms of what options are going to look like over the next 10 to 15 years for people struggling with behavioral health issues. So I think those are, those are some of the reasons I'm optimistic. I also remain optimistic because you see an increasing number of people owning stories in the public spotlight. You know, it used to be in if you looked at 15 years ago, somebody would catch Britney Spears or whoever the celebrity of the moment was leaving rehab. And it would literally be a paparazzi, quote unquote, catching the person. Now you see public figures, celebrities, singers, and as much as, you know, there's controversy about whether that's always the best thing. I actually like to see people that the public knows coming out and saying, I had this issue. This is how I'm thinking about it and sharing their story of recovery. Um, I do also think, you know, one other sort of more random reason for optimism from my perspective is I think we're seeing a generation of people who are looking at health in a different way, you know, whether it's for environmental reasons. I have a very progressive physician who is all about the plant-based diet. And, you know, if you told me as an avid steak eater that I would be approaching two days a week of vegetarian eating and sometimes even more, you know, five years ago, I would have laughed um, but that is sort of the mode I'm going in. And I'm, I'm probably five to 10 years older than the generation who I think is really hyper-focused on this. And the reason I say that gives me some hope is because I think about um, things like alcohol use, which is, in my opinion, one of the more insidious um, issues because it's, you know, most people, if you say you have a cocaine or a heroin problem, will say you know, need to go get help. Alcohol is sort of blessed as one of these things that we can celebrate with, we can drown our sorrows in, and a lot of high-functioning people use it and use it too much. So I think this next generation that is focused on health and wellness and embracing meditation and mindfulness, 
I do hope that it is going to be a generation not only that's not engaging in the Mad Men, you know, two Manhattans at lunch and then a couple at the end of the day, which we know now statistically is way above what you should be drinking in any one day, um, but is also just a group of people that, you know, whether they develop an issue or not, is going to look at alcohol and drugs and other substances and anxiety and stress as part of a holistic picture of health and try to do their best to mitigate their exposure to risks in our communities. Thank you. We're going to post, you know, a number of your materials up on our website. And I very much look forward to the continued conversation. I thank you for your public service, for your thoughtfulness, for your empathy. In essence, it's about, you know, how to scale the great work that you and others have been doing here, because this is a treatable and solvable issue, uh, but not if we continue on the current path. And uh, thank you for being part of the RAIN Network. Wonderful. Thanks so much. This was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Arden O'Connor leads the O'Connor Professional Group to address the needs of families and individuals struggling with an array of behavioral health issues, including addiction. You can learn more about the group at RAINNetwork.com. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Take advantage of our network's expertise. Subscribe to RAIN's core membership today and let us power your business to success. Learn more at RAINNetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.